Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And as historians, we need to probably try to spend more more time looking at espionage and intelligence as well as diplomatic negotiations and how they involve themselves in everything from peace settlements to the battles to simple communications between countries. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Ken Daigler talking about the intelligence-gathering techniques of Nathaniel Green. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of Noble Volunteers, The British Soldiers Who Fought the American Revolution by Don N. Haggist, with a foreword by Rick Atkinson. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Ken Daigler, and he'll be discussing General Nathaniel Green, often heralded for his role in the important campaigns of the South and the American Revolution. But in this case, Ken will discuss his ability as an intelligence gatherer, and I think importantly, a manager of that intelligence. When we think of Nathaniel Green, just like I think we think of a lot of Continental officers, we think about the big decisions that he has to make on the battlefield. But one of the really, really critical elements of fighting a war like Green was fighting and of the places he was fighting, in the American South particularly, was that as a commander, you had to have reliable, actionable intelligence on hand. Uh, It was demanded of him. And he wasn't out gathering this intelligence himself. Green was operating with a lot of people working behind the scenes through a lot of different channels uh, to bring him that information. That is one part of the revolutionary story that we are really just scratching the surface of because it was happening in every state all throughout the war, in the East and the West and the North and the South. And Ken Dagler brings uh, an educated viewpoint and experienced eye into this particular field of study. We'll talk about that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Ken Daigler. Ken Daigler, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Tell us about your background. Well, my background is simply that of a CIA officer for about 30 years, and uh, that's about the only job I had since I got out of graduate school in the Marine Corps. So, uh, have a fairly simple resume in that regard. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, Well, uh, actually, reading a great deal about the revolution is something I've done for many years. It actually started as a work project. But uh, I did notice that the Southern campaign, particularly when General Green was in command, wasn't covered a great deal in most popular histories. And so I took a look at that, and of course, when you get into reading histories of the revolution, one of the things that is always underreported is the concept of spying and the role that spies played in the military victories or in 
understanding and, and reacting to the British plans and intentions. So uh, I immediately looked at the 13 volumes of Green's writings and decided there's more than enough interest here and enough details to at least form a skeleton that would send me to many other places like the Society of Cincinnati in Washington and, and the various other libraries around the country that would add a, a decent view of what kind of spying he actually did on the British from the period of uh, 1780 until uh, well, 82 or so. Talk about Green's personal background. Sure. Uh, General Nathaniel Green, actually a boyhood hero of mine. I think one of the first books I read in the Revolution was a popular book, supposedly history, but probably more novel, on, on uh, the fighting Quaker Nathaniel Green, because Green's family lived in Rhode Island, and they were part of the Quaker Fellowship. However, uh, unfortunately, Nathaniel didn't get along too well with the rest of the members, and he was subsequently thrown out of the Quaker Fellowship and found his home in the militia that actually was founded in, in Rhode Island at that point in Saturday. He became a commander there. Subsequently, he was one of the senior people who joined the Boston Army of Occupation, and subsequently, when General Washington took over and in the summer of 1775, he thought enough of Green to ensure that he was commander of the Rhode Island troops in the Continental Army. And from there, he became a mentee of Washington. And indeed, many people, I think, legitimately consider Green probably the second best general of all the American uh, generals during the Revolution. What role does or did intelligence gathering play in fighting a war? Oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean... Intelligence gathering, for the most part, is a secret activity. It's secret because you have to maintain a shroud of secrecy over your capabilities, let alone any aspects you have, or or basically, in plain words, how you are able to find the information you need. So it's a massive force multiplier used in every war. Uh, the Revolutionary War is, a, is an example, and we have a few records of it because it's almost 250 years old, but... Uh, you cannot have a war without having decent intelligence. It can be tactical intelligence, for example, because if you're in a combat unit, you want to know what's over the next hill or what's in the wood line or whether the village ahead of you is occupied or fortified. So without that type of knowledge or intelligence, it's very hard to conduct any kind of a military operation. Once you get into the more sophisticated aspects of it, such as the Culper Ring had in New York, you've actually got individuals reporting what senior British officials are saying regarding their plans, their intentions, their troop movements, their provisions, their supplies, their general strategy, etc. And then you get into the field where intelligence is probably its most valuable because instead of reacting to what's being done by an adversary, you actually can take an action to neutralize it before it actually occurs. What do you feel are Green's greatest strengths? Yeah, Green's character was a, was a very interesting aspect. And again, it's hard to deconstruct that from the mentory position he had with Washington. Because one of Green's greatest strengths was not just his grasp of the common sense aspects of warfare or maneuver or intelligence gathering, for that matter, but he had a real ability to get along with some rather difficult sub-commanders, particularly in the, the Southern War, when you work with people like 
Thomas Sumter and uh, on occasion Francis Marion could be a little hard to deal with and all it was, but it was his, his ability to basically act as a gentleman, act professionally with them, and whenever possible motivate them to try and do something to support his overall efforts. How did Green gather such exceptional intelligence? Yeah, you're absolutely right. He had very little in the way of drones or radio intercept capability. It was it was done primarily through human collection. And uh, interestingly enough, the first notation in his his papers go back to a period in July of 1775 when you've just basically got Washington having taken over the army, and he actually notes uh, using one human source in Boston to bring out information regarding what the British were doing there. Um, he simply carried this forth into his role as the commander when he took over in the South. Uh, he used his cavalry as tactical movement forces who would patrol very near British positions and understand what their patrolling was, know what fortified positions they had, be able to count the number of people there, uh, and also basically decide what their defensive fields of fire were in terms of of both attack and, and defense for the Continental Forces. Uh, the South was a particularly interesting aspect because it was the, what's the term they use? It's a Maoist term, actually, I guess, movement of forces. He was always undermanned, because as you'll recall, just before he took over, we had General Lincoln losing about 5,000 people to that old Charlestown, and then we had General... Uh, uh, General uh, Gates, rather, coming down at Camden and losing another 4,000. So by the time he got there in December of 1780, he had very few forces to work with. So he immediately had to use intelligence to tell him where the British were planning to go and how they were planning to move, but primarily so he could avoid them. And to do this, he used his cavalry and a lot of the militia. Again, we get Sumter and we get uh, Swamp Fox Marion and some others involved in that to, at a distance, monitor the British as they moved, the areas they fortified, and to ensure that his undermanned forces didn't try to face them in battle where they would be just simply outmanned. Who were some of Green's most valuable assets? Well, to be perfectly frank, because I'm a guy who enjoys the the larger aspects of the strategic intelligence, it was the tactical intelligence that he got from the militia group in South Carolina with Sumter and, of course, Marion's very small band of people who were always within a couple hundred yards of the British forces as they moved. And then he also used the uh, Maryland captain, William Wilmot, as a source similar as well. Uh, and, and these were the real bread and butter things. For example, one of the key battles, the Battle of Cowpen. Uh, Daniel Morgan, who actually directed and established the Continental Forces at Cowpen, was able to learn four days earlier that when Tarleton attacked in three days' time, first of all, he knew Tarleton would attack exactly the same way he'd been attacking during the entire period, which gave him a, a great deal of intelligence. But more importantly, he also knew from Green that uh, General Leslie and General Cornwallis were so far away that there was no chance at all that Tarleton could be reinforced. Consequently, the troops at his disposal were his reserve. And if you went through those, and if they attacked as anticipated, 
there were no reinforcements and Tarleton's light forces would simply be decimated or destroyed. Uh, now, there's also the concept of intelligence out of places like Charleston, which was a, a British central command post. And there he used Colonel John Lawrence, a rather idealistic young man who actually ran some very good agent operations with various merchants who, who would go into Charleston, do business there, often doing business with the British authorities, but be able to come back and then tell Lawrence exactly what was going on, how the provisions were going, what troops had arrived, what troops had departed, and where the British indeed might be sending out parties to either reinforce or to search the countryside for remnants of the Continental Forces. So he used uh, both tactical intelligence from his light cavalry and his militia, and then a little bit more plans and intentions intelligence, primarily through John Lorenz. Why was intelligence gathering so vital for fighting a war in the South? Yeah, I suspect, again, it was because by the time Green took over in December of 1780, earlier in the year, again, they had lost some close to 10,000 Continental troops. Now, considering that Washington's army at its best uh, was around 8,000, losing 10,000 troops was a big deal. So you had a large area, you had... North Carolina, South Carolina, Tidewater, Virginia, and Georgia. And the British thought that their strategy was that they would send troops in there and raise local support through the Tories and Loyalists. Of course, that never came about. But uh, Green was always operating from day one in December with many less forces than the British had. Consequently, he had to be able to know how to not only react to them, but also how to be proactive in terms of choosing his paths of retreat, choosing what points he would defend, and eventually figuring out how to segment the British into small enough forces that when they did fight, there was a relative equality of numbers on both sides. So this was a classic war of movement. Uh, I had mentioned Mao Zedong before, and it's interesting. Uh, I've read many studies where the Mao Zedong strategy and World War II was very similar to what Green used in, in the South during his time there. It was a war of mobility, a war where you were facing superior forces and your success depended on your knowledge of where the enemy was and what they planned to do. Do you feel that Green's tactics would be helpful for modern intelligence agents? Well, it's a very interesting question. And I, I don't think we can say that Green was particularly uh, focused on intelligence. I think he simply saw that as part of the greater mix of how a military operation is, is run and how a command is, is handled and managed. Um, his, I mean, his use of observation intelligence, primarily human, with his light cavalry was, of course, a, a standard part of intelligence up through World War One. So that's hardly anything new. But uh, no, I can't say that he was a particularly inventive individual in terms of his use of intelligence. Rather, he had the common sense to recognize the elements that you need to have in order to either scout a military position and report back or debrief an enemy soldier or keep the records necessary to cross-check information from a businessman coming back from a major city. He, he had the common sense and the discipline necessary, some of which he probably learned 
just watching the way Washington handled his business for the many years they were together. How does this study help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Yeah, I think what it does it is it focuses on an area that is very underreported in history. Although, as we move into the modern days in World War II, it's a bit better reported. But that, that basically has to do with espionage, which is the area I've kind of focused on. All too often, historians write about intelligence under the guise of diplomatic activity. But that's not really the essence of it. The essence of it has to do with human spies who, for the most part, were able to gain access from the adversary to information which in effect allowed them to change the course of either a policy or of a battle because it was inside information of such value. And as historians, we need to probably try to spend more, more time looking at espionage and intelligence as well as diplomatic negotiations and how they involve themselves in everything from peace settlements to the battles to simple communications between countries. It's a field that is not terribly well done. I mean, I could name them probably two hands the number of people who have written extensively about it, and I understand why. I mean, having been in the classified environment for a long period of time, I'm very well aware that what you read about in the newspapers may only be quite an interesting variant in what really has happened or, or what actions have been taken. But particularly when you're dealing with the Revolutionary War and to some degree the Civil War, we are at the period where if you go back to original sources and you apply a little bit of historiography and critical thinking, you can come away with a much better understanding of why things happened. And often spying is one of the causation factors in that. Ken Degler, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.